All right. Bow our heads in order of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness, your presence here with us. We want to commit our time in your word uh, to your care, to your sovereign power to awaken hearts. Even among us, Lord, we are dull of hearing, we are slow to respond. Please uh, inflame our hearts, power of your word and the grace of the gospel, that we may respond in faith and obedience and love toward you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, in our scripture reading this morning, we went through the first chapter just so, um, in case you disobeyed my orders from last Sunday and didn't read through the book of Daniel, you know, now you're up to speed for the most part. Got through chapter one. We want to be fresh in our minds. We want to understand the context as a whole because we will probably only get through the first seven verses this morning, which I know historically is a miracle uh, when I'm preaching, but I think we can do it given that this is narrative and history, and so there's uh, the, the details are unpacked in a, in a different way, often more efficiently. Um, let me tell you something. Daniel is an awesome book, and I've had a really enjoyable time uh, studying it. Sometimes you forget that not only is you know the Bible inerrant and clear and useful, and all kinds of things, but the Bible is also fun. So when you're studying, you can't forget to enjoy yourself from time to time. This is great. The Lord is speaking to me. I should, I should take delight in this. Also reminded of another thing. I can't, remember, I can't remember the author. I remember stumbling across it in the library and seminary. It was called Daniel in the Critic's Den. Daniel in the Critic's Den. And a book like that is written for understandable reasons. Uh, of all the books in Scripture, Daniel is one of the most hotly debated. Hotly debated uh, amongst believers and unbelievers. From, from unbelievers especially, it's reliability, it's dating, it's historicity, pretty much everything about it. And let me tell you, the more you study Daniel, the more you will, I am confident, galvanize your confidence in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. You start seeing how all these things match up, and how Scripture explains itself by itself. And so, I think we're off to a good start here, and, and this study will be beneficial to us. So we are in the book of Daniel, if you will read with me once again, so it's fresh in our minds, the first seven verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, Youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence and every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were enter the, to enter 
the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, some of this pertains to the following text that we're going to study starting next Lord's Day. So, do not be disheartened if we skip over some of the details in certain parts of this text. That simply means we are going to cover them later. So, we are going to get into the introductory material of the actual text this morning, and I think that you will find that even in narrative, you have some powerful truth being reflected once you put this against the backdrop of the rest of God's Word. There's a lot of truth that we can uncover here. And when it comes to preaching from any book, we are to reveal who God is. That's my highest priority, is to simply preach God to you. And it's no different even in a text like this that's just basically from first appearance telling a simple story of exile. But we also, as the title would indicate, we don't just want to understand this as Israel's exile. We want to understand it as God in exile. That should strike you as a pretty strange thing, but work with me. All right. Get the meaning of things. First of all, what does exile mean? Most of us in our lifetime will not experience what that means, but it is a very heartbreaking thing because, and appropriately so, we often attach ourselves, who we are, our very identity, to our own nation. It would be very difficult to find in here an exception of a person who wouldn't be absolutely devastated if they were removed from the United States because America is super cool and great, if we were removed from this country and we couldn't come back. Right? This is home. This is, this is native soil. This is where we grew up. This is the land we love. We would hate to never be able to come back here. And yet, this was the reality for many of the children of Israel. Exile, the state of being barred from one's native country, typically for either political or punitive reasons. Now, as it concerns Israel, it's the latter. It's punitive reasons. Clearly, the Lord warns them from multiple prophets, repent or you will be exiled from the land. Also, the state or a period of forced absence from one's country or home. Now, we would see this as a period of forced absence. This is never something that was meant in the mind of God or based on the promises of God to be a permanent circumstance for Israel. There was a return from exile that was promised. So, here we come to, as the text says, if you want to turn there with me if you're not there already, we're going to get into some history. Sorry, i got to chew on a cough drop. i am still uh, still got a scratchy throat, but we'll... We'll do the best we can. So he says, this is in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So that is our, that is our, historical, that is our historical setting. So keep that in mind. Because timelines matter immensely in, in the book of Daniel. So this is in Babel, it says, in, in the land of Babylon, in Shinar specifically. We'll get to understanding that uh, because there is, a, there is a purpose behind that. But in Jerusalem's history, in Judah's history, it says that it is 
the third year, the third year in the reign of in the, in the reign of Jehoiakim. And so he is the king of Judah. Remember, the ten northern kingdoms have already been exiled, and so the, the, the tribe of Judah remains. And so Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, remember a foreign king, comes in and invades. Now don't mistake this with the eventual sacking and destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. This came later. Historically speaking, there were different phases of exile. It didn't all happen in one fell swoop. This happens over the series of, of close to 20 years from what we understand historically. That Nebuchadnezzar, you could say, dealt rather patiently with, with Judah until he eventually uh, destroyed Jerusalem. So this did not happen. This did not happen very quickly. And so what does it say here? He sa- it says that he comes and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. So in this, I want us to see the first point, right? We say, what is the point of this narrative? And I want to draw at least three primary truths from this. Things, things that we know about God. Because we don't want to think for a minute that God is somehow absent in exile. He, will, he was with his people. He said so. In fact, if you want to turn very quickly to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, we read what he says here. He promises exile. Remember, there is, there's this continual apostasy. And finally, the cup of judgment is full. And Jeremiah says... To his people, let's start at verse 8. Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely. To you in my name I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. So the word of the Lord we know from this, is still coming to the exiles via the prophet Jeremiah. And I know we love to quote Jeremiah 29.11, where he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. But of course, then they are to call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find you when you search me with all your heart. This is preached to a people who are not seeking the Lord with all their heart. This is a people who has rebelled against the Lord and so are sent, and so are sent into exile. Okay. So we understand that. We understand that even though they are in exile, God is with them. We don't want to miss that. And so, how that connects with the opening of this particular book, we find that this, the beginning of the exile for Judah has taken place with this, uh, this sieging, besieging of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. We will call this part the conquest. Now, if we understand that even God is going into exile, as it were, with his people, we find that even though God is in exile, in a pagan conquest, his promises are certain. That's the first thing we want to know. In a pagan conquest, God's promises are certain. And I think the first promise we want to see is God's fulfilled word. The fact that he warned his people that if they did not stop rebelling against him, they would be cut off from the land. And that's going to be an interesting pattern that shows up in Daniel is this, this word cut. There's a lot of cutting that will happen. But first and foremost, God will cut off his people from the land in a temporary judgment, remove them away from 
the land of Israel and remove them to a foreign land where they will be disciplined under a foreign king. But we have to understand that just because God is in exile, it does not call His promises into question. He is the same God. He is mighty to save. And He is mighty to preserve His people. So His promise to preserve His people in this is sure. But first, He keeps His Word. right? His Word, His promises, they are all certain. He will not fail to bring His judgments to pass and He will not fail to preserve, to preserve His people. So, back, back to the book of Daniel from Ezekiel. We're going to be popping around a lot uh, in the Old Testament this morning, so have your index finger uh, at the ready. And so here's how it unfolds. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And he takes all of these, he takes all of these uh, holy vessels that were dedicated to, to the service of the temple of Yahweh, and he removes those with them, takes all those to Babylon with him. So we're seeing he is despoiling, he is despoiling, despoiling Jerusalem, which I think is very important because in the mind of, of the Jew, this was invincible, this was untouchable. Right? And yet we see that as they dishonor God, God is willing, God is willing to be removed in a sense because these vessels, don't miss this, these vessels signify his presence in the temple. The temple also signifies his presence, and eventually that's destroyed. And so what's going on here is about in 605 BC, right? 605 BC more or less, about 20 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so right now at this point, even though Nebuchadnezzar is functionally king, most likely his father, King Nabopolassar, another tongue twister of a name, is is king, but his health at this point is fading. And so his son Nebuchadnezzar is off fighting. And around this time, he's fighting the Egyptians. He's fighting them back because they had settled in the realm of Babylon. So he, so he fights them, he defeats them at the Battle of Carchemish, and then basically pursues them all the way back to Egypt. Right? He's, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be a very uh, gallant warrior and able commander in the field over the Babylonian army. And it's thought that during this time, because Jerusalem is in the way, he besieges it and takes command of it. And so we know that at this point, there was probably no rebellion. That hasn't mounted yet. And so it says, as the text indicates, Jehoiakim was king in Judah. Jehoiakim was a king that was appointed, as uh, Jeremiah tells us, or 2 Kings rather tells us, was appointed by Pharaoh Necho. If you remember Pharaoh Necho, he was, he was the Pharaoh who killed King Josiah in, 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 a, in a battle. Right. So King Josiah, who was a good king, one of the final kings of Judah, was killed in that battle, and his son Jehoiakim takes the throne. So he's king in Judah at this time. He remains a, ba- a vassal king, and he is not put to death. It is said that he is even sent to Babylon for a time, and then he is even returned to Judah months later. He puts up a rebellion at some point, but even that is put down. But for some reason, King Nebuchadnezzar does not kill him, and he even reigns until 597 B.C. So he stays king for a while. He's probably useful to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar to some degree, and so he is kept on the throne. So even God in His grace warns the king, warns the people not to rebel against King Nebuchadnezzar. You have to remember that all of these people, whether pagan or Israelite, are all under the sovereign power of God. 
He knows what's going on. He has a plan. And so he can call even a pagan king my servant, which he does. He says that Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. He is carrying out my will. Do not rebel against him. And so after this siege, in the same year, King Nabopolassar dies, and then Nebuchadnezzar returns to Babylon to become king. So just a short little history there of what is going on. And so when this happens, it says that, going back to the text again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Okay, so you see, in a sense, multiple gods you know, be, being, being listed here. So, first of all, we know the Lord. The Lord is in command. He hands over the king into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And then he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Okay, so here is, a, here is an idol. Here is a false god that is, um, that is coming along here. Now, very important at this point in history, you had, you, you had in all these pagan nations, they had their own gods. They had their own pantheons. And so, to, to a king like Nebuchadnezzar, to a pagan king, this would be very significant. If he brings the vessels of a temple of another nation to the house or temple of his god, he sees his god as superior. So at this point in history, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar has won. It looks like Nebuchadnezzar's god has exercised victory over the god of Israel, over the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we would look at this and we should laugh. We should say how little King Nebuchadnezzar knows. Because this is within the plan of God all along. And I think the first, the first glimpse of that we see is he mentions here the land of Shinar or Shinar, depending on how you pronounce it. And I think that's very pointed. We should, we should look at Shinar and say, aha, okay, so the Lord has something very interesting, something very special planned here. The land of Shinar is referenced about eight times in the Old Testament, in Genesis, Joshua, Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah. Always typically in connection with the land of Babylon, or as some would say, Babylonia. Okay. So Shinar is a very, very significant region in Babylon. I think the first time we, the first time we see it is in Genesis 10.10. So if you want to flip there with me, go to Genesis chapter 10. I, see, I think we see a very important theme emerging. We've mentioned this guy before. Nimrod in verse 9. And it says in verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now there's a couple meanings of that and we actually see a pun put to use in this text. Babel's meant to mean gate of God. And so names carried a very distinctive purpose. They do today. And they did back then. So apparently, given the name, this was seen, this location, the city was seen as a meeting place. A meeting place between, presumably, God and men. Why else would you call it uh, the gate of God? And so we see this city, this city, the city founded. Now, if you go to verse 11, we see what becomes of Babel, Babylon, Babylonia, Shinar. And it mentions the fact in the opening verse, but the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they, that is the nations, the people, they journeyed east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what did God want people to do? He wanted them to scatter, right? We see the same problem today in cities. When you start building and and placing people on top of one another, you tend to see a higher concentration of sin. He wants, he wants people to scatter. And so they, you'll notice a pattern here. Let us, let us, let us. And then what's the desired result? We will make a name for ourselves. Right? We, we, we've been over this before. And what's the whole purpose of humanity? Humanity is meant to come a, together not to make a name for themselves, but to, to make the name of God great in all the world. And so this is, this, I mean, guys, this is the depth of satanic behavior. Not when we try to make Satan's name great, but when we try to make our own name great. And so Babel or Shinar becomes this motif of united human wickedness. We see it here. We see it in, we see it later on in the book of Daniel when, when King Nebuchadnezzar is walking in his balcony and he's surveying his kingdom. And in his, and in his heart, he takes, he gives himself credit for building Babylon. His heart is lifted up. Shinar, Babel, Babel speaks to the pride of man, speaks to his rebellion against God. And I think we see it very profoundly in a third place in the book of Revelation. Most of us are familiar with Mystery Babylon, which points to the, the corruption of humanity. And I think specifically in the book of Revelation, it's, it points to this, this pact between apostate Jews and the Roman civil authorities. See, here you got that, that you, the, the, these people united to array themselves against not only God, but against the people of God. So that's a very important motif. So, so when we read Shinar, that should draw our attention instantly back to the Tower of Babel. Let us, let us, let us. This, this, this united apostasy. And then I love it because no matter how high they build, guess what God still has to do? God still comes down. These people think they can build high. They think they can build the heaven. That was the intent. Babel, the gate or the door of heaven. And then what does God do? He scatters them. He scatters them by confusing their speech. And then they stopped building the city. And then the pun is in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, Babel, which means confusion. And the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of of the whole earth. And so now we see, in a sense, another gathering. The Lord, through exiling His people, and by extension Himself, being present with His people in Babylon, He is going to do another work. And so we see here that even though they are in a cesspool, a hive of humanism and wickedness, it will not in any way compromise God's ability to fulfill His promise. And so, here we have Babylon, this first great empire, and its close association with wickedness and rebellion. And we could, and we could sit here and wonder, how is the Lord going to work through His people? How is He going to keep His promises intact? How is He going to magnify Himself in a place full of such humanistic wickedness and spiritual rebellion? 
And as the book of Daniel unfolds, we are going to see he's going to do just that. And he's going to do so using people. Little insignificant people as his instruments and spokesmen of his truth and of his grace. So even in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest, even in the midst of this declaration of victory, bringing along these vessels into uh, of the house of God, and note here the house of God, very interesting. In Hebrew, there's a definite article there. The house of the God, the God of Israel, the one true God. Right? He is introduced in the opening verses of this passage. And so we find His sovereign power and might will, will thread, be threaded throughout the entire work of this prophetic book. Even though He gives Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, even though He allows the vessels to be taken, He is still the God. And we will see that profoundly expressed later on, even in the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. But for now, they are in a wicked land, the land of Shinar, to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God, and he brings the vessels of the treasury into, into the treasury of his God. So can't miss that. So God in exile. Back to that theme. At this point, right? At this point, if we if we don't think like Christians and we think like pagans, we would start putting limitations on God. Right? We would think, surely. God is out of place. Surely God has been rendered powerless. Surely God in some way is limited in His ability to operate with a mighty hand in the midst of His people. I mean, think of, think of how often we complain in our own setting, right? Our own setting. How, how corrupt our country has become. How wicked our elected representatives are. We, we, we talked about this last Lord's Day. Our faith falters because we somehow limit God's ability. And we say, oh, keep God out of all these things. Keep God out of politics. Keep God out of Washington. And then it happens, and then we complain. Our government is so corrupt. Our taxes are legalized theft. Our congressmen are liars. Our judges are Marxists. Our president is, you know the thing. It's, it's disastrous, right? We, all we care about is all the bad things that are going on. And that brings me to my second point. In pagan culture, God's power is sure. In conquest, His promises are certain, but even in a pagan culture, His power is sure. God is not limited based on geography. And I think we see a very definitive pattern at work here. The fact that God, in no sense, is out of place. I think we see this abundantly made clear in Scripture. We rarely, we rarely see God letting those who oppose Him come to Him, right? He doesn't, God doesn't lie in wait and say, I'm just going to let my enemies come to me. Now think about the legitimacy of a claim like this. I mean, when did, when did man declare himself an enemy of God? In the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. When man ate of the fruit and decided to do his own thing, decided that he wanted to be like God on his own terms. Did, we, did God wait for man to come to him? No, what did he do? He went out searching. Oh man, where are you? Where are you? Come out. Come clean. Right? 
Man hides. God is able to be on the move and to seek out those who turn against Him. We never want to think that God is somehow out of place. God was not out of place when He went seeking the man and his wife. God was not out of place when He went to Egypt with Moses. What did He say in Exodus 3.12? I will be with you. God was not out of place when He went with Joshua into the promised land. He even tells Joshua, 1.5 and 3.7, I will be with you. I love this passage from 2 Kings 19.35. There's this siege by the king Sennacherib, the Assyrian king Sennacherib. King Hezekiah cries out to the Lord, asks asks the Lord for help. And what happens? That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. He went in the midst of his enemies. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Huge pattern here. A pattern that we cannot miss. God goes forth. God is not feeling uncomfortable or distraught or shaken because He is, quote-unquote, in exile. Because the fact is, is that God owns the land where He is exiled. And the amazing truth behind this, friends, is that God is going to declare, He's going to make very clear, but He is not only the God of Israel. He is God in Babylon. He is God in Persia. He's God in Greece. He's God in Rome. Everywhere He goes, He is the true and living God. The earth is the Lord and all it contains. All kings must bow down to Him. All so-called gods must be made of no account. We're beginning to see this theme emerge that even though God is in a foreign land, He remains God. It's like you have to look at this through the eyes of faith and through the eyes of Scripture and say, oh my goodness, they're playing right into His hand. Can you believe this? Haven't we seen this before? Oh, we've captured Him. Think back. Think about those Old Testament stories you've read about. Think about the book of 1 Samuel. Think about the book of 1 Samuel. What did, what did they do? The Israelites went out into battle. I believe it's 1 Samuel 5. Let's turn there to 1 Samuel. Ah, yes. 1 Samuel. Well, 1 Samuel 4, actually. What happens? The, 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 the Israelites fight the Philistines. And what happens? Israel was defeated. Oh, Israel was defeated in Daniel 1. Oh, what happened after that? Oh, the ark of God. What did the ark of God declare? His presence. The Lord was present in the ark between, between the two cherubim, right? The mercy seat. God dwelt in the ark of the covenant. And so I think what happened here is that Israel was disobedient and, and, they, and, they, and they brought out the ark of the covenant uh, to battle. I think they used it as sort of as a talisman rather than actually trusting in the Lord and living in obedient faith to Him. And so what happens Against all odds in the mind of an Israelite is that the the ark was taken. No way. Well, it was taken. What are they going to do? The Philistines fought hard. And in verse 10 of chapter 4 in 1 Samuel, it says, Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. 
The glory has departed from Israel, verse 22 says, for the ark of God was taken. And then it says in chapter 5, now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So if you're a Philistine, you're thinking, we've got them. Because remember, they heard those horror stories about the gods of Egypt being completely destroyed and humiliated. right? And so, they, they, they quiver at the thought of the God of Israel defeating them, exercising judgment on them, but now they're like, whew, we can rest. Maybe this, maybe this God was not so tough. We've captured the ark of His presence, the ark of His covenant, and now we can take Him and put Him in our own temple. And they took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And what are they saying? Oh, who is... Who is like Dagon? Dagon, our God, has subdued Yahweh. And then it says in verse 3, when the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So you'd think that the Lord was trying to tell the Philistines something. You can't capture me. I am not under your power. Look, your God, made by your own hands. His hands are broken. His head is busted. And then he afflicts them with, with tumors. He afflicts the people to where they eventually have to return the ark. And so a couple things are going to happen. If God goes into exile, God goes into a foreign country, He's either going to judge it, or He is going to save it. But we have to at least look at this and say, oh my goodness, Babylonians, you're, you're just playing a part. How insignificant you are in the face of God's sovereign hand. You're doing exactly what He wants you to do. You are playing exactly according to His design. You are not really in control. You are not really sovereign. God is sovereign. You think that He is captive to your gods? No. He will crush them. He will make them bow down. And He will become your God, as we see in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. It's all planned, guys. And that should make our hearts rejoice. The fact that God in exile is not a God who is unable to keep His promises and He is not a a God who is unable to demonstrate His power in a thoroughly pagan culture. We should not place any limits whatsoever on this sovereign God of power. Power and grace. Not in Babylon, not in Rome, not in Persia, not in Greece, not, in, not even in our own country. This should give us confidence that no matter where we are in redemptive history, the Lord is able to work mightily and to demonstrate His power. And yet we have become so unbelieving in that regard. We are, our faith is so weak because in our minds our God is so small. Because we said, keep him out of this, keep him out of that. No, God doesn't. It's like we've, we, we've just unilaterally claimed as if we know something that God no longer works here or there. When in fact, He works everywhere because He's claimed it. It belongs to Him. And He is sovereign and power over, powerful over it. 
go back to the back to the text here. And so we see this subduing. You know, I think we see the same pattern just by way of reminder. It is we see the same pattern emerge in in the life of Joseph. It is often said that Daniel acts as a as a second Joseph. Joseph was exiled to a foreign king, to Pharaoh, and and what happened? He was able to, as Daniel was, to to interpret dreams, and he became an advisor of the king. He was in Potiphar's household, and here we see the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, much like the role Potiphar played, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no effect or no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning and knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. There we go. What's going on here? Very important. What's Nebuchadnezzar doing as king, as a pagan king? He's culture building. He's building his kingdom. What, a, what an insult, right? What a, what a claim to victory to be able to take, to take followers of another god from a foreign land and then essentially brainwash them, train them up in your system, right? Your, your literature, your, your wisdom, your language, and to take from the finest stock and say they're going to become true Babylonians. True Babylonians. Definitely a flex from King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what he's doing. He is, he is building his own kingdom. And, and, and once again, the challenge here is to say, okay, where is, where is the Lord working? Is Nebuchadnezzar just going to be able to take these men, these Israelites, and then change them? Thoroughly paganize them? I mean, it's a challenge for us today. We're going we to sit by and watch this happen to our own kids? These, the, our, our sons? Our daughters? Nothing new under the sun, friends. This has been going on then. It's happening now. Make them Babel. Make them Babylonians to make them pagans. And they and they and they bring and they bring these people out from the royal family, nobles, the best of the best. This is a this is a cultural and political and spiritual statement. This is a this is a statement of victory and authority from a pagan king. And these are at his disposal. Brings in these youths in whom there was no defect. So so young men primarily, similar. These are similar to Levitical qualifications in, in Leviticus chapter 21. Go ahead and mark that. We won't have to turn there. But it says this, verse 16, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. So here's some, some priestly sanctions, some laws regarding serving, serving uh, as a priest before the Lord. And so, you know, you see some similarities there between Babylon and and the practice of, the, of Israel. And he says this, For no one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face, or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema, or scabs and crushed testicles. I mean, that escalated. I mean, that really narrows it down. Right. They wanted the best of the best. They wanted those who were young, so strong, energetic. They wanted those who were good looking. So some of us are out automatically. 
physical, right? The physical matter, the form matter, the stature matter, you know, the things that are typically important to us today. Like, what do we look for, right? We typically look on the surface. Same with Babylon. They were good looking. They showed intelligence and every branch of wisdom, right? So again, they were smart, right? So there's, there's, there's a, they want to make sure they're mentally sharp, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, right? They're not looking for, for average people. They're looking for exceptional people by human standards. Let's see, it's so, it's so human here. Right? And then we get to see God work. Even though Nebuchadnezzar may have his own purposes, it will never thwart the ultimate purposes of God. See, he's using this to build his own kingdom, and yet we see God in exile as the ultimate infiltrator unit, and he's going to turn Babylon upside down through his saving power. And then this and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. So that is often seen as, as, as the social aspect. People who can work with, with other people. So you have the physical, the mental, the social. Right? Cream of the crop, really. That's what matters to him. These are all the things we prize today. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. I mean, and, look at, and what a temptation this would be if you were an Israelite. What a temptation this would be. You, you want to walk with your God. You understand if you have listened to the prophets, right? If you listen to them speak, you understand God is still with you. God has not abandoned you. He has plans for you, plans for a hope and a future. You believe that. And yet here you are now in this thoroughly pagan culture and you're entering, you're entering public education. You should send shivers down your spine. You're entering the system, right? And you see, and you see how long this takes. It would be three years if you look at verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food. See, you're going you're gonna to read what we read. You're going to speak how we speak. You're going to drink what we drink. But they should be educated three years. It's like, man, we, we've got to indoctrinate you. We've got to cause you to forget all that other stuff you were learning. You've got to become Chaldean. You've got to become like us. You've got to serve our gods. And to just be in a situation like that where, where it's almost palpable. It's so pagan. Everywhere you look, it's pagan. What kind of heart it must take to be able to stand against that. Against those daily temptations for Daniel and his friends in particular and to continue to walk faithfully with their God. But, I don't want to say luckily, but fortunately for them, God is with them, and His grace is working in them. As we will see in verse 8, Daniel making up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. We see the resolution there. We see God at work in His heart and in the hearts of His friends. That's how. But I just want you to understand the setting, the culture, and you could even say the demonic power at work to turn the heart's of these young Israelites against the living God. Right? And it's amazing too. Th think of how efficient this is. That they should be educated for three years. I mean, we send our kids through public education. It takes longer than that. I mean, we, if you started with kindergarten, what are we looking at? 17 years? Kindergarten, first through 12th grade, and then four years of, four years of college if, if they go that route. And it's becoming increasingly pagan, but it takes a lot of time. I mean, three years. Wow. Their professors must have been 
high on something. They must have really known things. To have a system in place like that to be able to just tear everything away from them. How do we withstand that? There's only one answer, and that is God's power. Even in today's culture, friends, we, we, have, we, we have God's power at our disposal because He is with us. And no matter how pagan it is, we can live as believers because the grace of God is able to overcome what the enemy can throw at us. The wisdom of God what does it say? That the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. The weakness of God is greater than the strength of man. And it is able to sustain us. And so we see in all of these things, God is setting the stage. Don't miss this for the remainder of our study. God is setting the stage to do an amazing transforming work. And He's going to work in the life of no one less than King Nebuchadnezzar. So all that... All that He intends to do is going to be flipped on its head. And He will come to bow the knee to the true and living God. To the God. The God of Israel. No matter what He chooses. No matter what He appoints. No matter what He, he cuts. No matter what He orders. God, the true God, will be magnified. And after these three years, at the end of them, they are to enter the king's personal service. Now that you're thoroughly paganized, you are going to serve me. And so then we come to the third one, right? In pagan conquest, God's promises are certain. In pagan culture, God's power is sure. And in pagan captivity, His people are secure. Now we zoom in on God's people, God's appointed men who will do mighty things in His name in Babylon. Now verse 6 now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So names are very important, right? They've always been important. That's what's in a name, right? First thing is identity. Typically, a name corresponds with who you hope that person will be. I think most of you, I would certainly hope most of you don't just give your kid a name randomly without thinking about it. A name represents the kind of person you want them to be. You know, my, my, my son's name is Andrew, which comes from the Greek and it means manly. I want my kid to be a man of God. I want him to be a manly man. I don't want him to be effeminate. I want him to be manly, right? My name's Jonathan. It means God is gracious. I hope that as I grow in the Lord, I demonstrate in some way, shape, or form that God is in fact a gracious God, right? Not that He's impatient and capricious and prone to swift bouts of anger, you know? I want to I demonstrate by my life and my conduct that I serve a gracious God. So names mean something. They point to an identity. But also in a name, once again, Changing someone's name, remember we saw that in Pharaoh Necho, to change someone's name meant to proclaim victory over them. So this was Nebuchadnezzar's way of proclaiming victory over their God. And I'll show you how. Daniel, God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect the king. Bel was the name of a Babylonian pagan deity. 
Bel protect the king. Right? Protect, protect the king who? King Nebuchadnezzar, of course. Your name's going to represent that. When people look at you, Daniel, they're going to say, oh, you're Belteshazzar. God save the king, right? Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. And his name was changed to Shadrach, the command of Aku, another Babylonian deity. Mishael, similar name, Michael, who, which means who is like God? It's a question. This name is a question. Who is like God? Answer, no one. And then he, then he is changed to Meshach, who is like Aku, or who is what Aku is? Aku is, by the way, the Babylonian moon god. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. And trust me, at this point, these guys need help. The Lord is my helper. Changed to Abednego, servant of Nego, or what is properly thought in the pantheon of Babylon, Nebo. Read in a commentary this morning that there is no Babylonian god named Nego, so it suggests that this is a deliberate misspelling. Right? But even in Isaiah 46.1, we read, Let's turn, I'll just turn to Isaiah 46.1. Listen to this. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. Right. The things that you carry are burdensome. A load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to this. Their destiny is going to be the same as Dagon. They are going to find themselves stooped over. Stooped over in their own temple, as it were. Because where God is, He is the Lord. And He will humiliate the gods of the pagans. To count them as nothing. They will bow down. That's what the Lord says. So even, even this claim of victory, this claim also you could say of possession and adoption, that Nebuchadnezzar in effect sees them as sons, right? They are no longer the sons of Israel. They are the sons of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who has taken them into captivity and taken their God into exile. So he's changed their name. Even Pharaoh changed Joseph's name. The Zaphonath Paneah, one who discovers hidden things. And so it will be the destiny of Daniel to discover hidden things. So all of these things connect when it comes to God's people in exile. These are new names. And so you kind of find them. You, kind of, you should be asking the questions, okay, these are, these are two worlds, right? These are, these are two identities. These are identities in fundamental conflict. What will win out as the story progresses? Will Daniel truly be Daniel? Or will he be a Belteshazzar? Will Azariah truly be Azariah? Will, will the Lord be his helper? Or will he be a servant of Nebo? How will this pan out? Those are the questions we should be asking. But the answer is already given to us because we know that the Lord is with them and that the Lord will help them. We know that there is no one like the Lord. We know that the Lord is gracious and we know that the Lord will judge in truth and He will judge the Babylonian gods and He will judge the Babylonian kings. I think it serves to remind us that it's not what other people call you, it's how God knows you. Who does God know you as? What does God say of you? 
And in closing, right, these three points, God's promises are certain, His power is sure, and His people are secure. I want to ask another question. How do we see the Gospel in this passage? I think we can see it in a multiplicity of ways, but I just want to take you to a couple of Scriptures because I think this points to some amazing realities. First of all, we've talked about this before, we don't find a pattern in Scripture of God letting His enemies come to Him. Rather, He infiltrates he invades because it's his territory anyway. Listen to what Isaiah says. Isaiah describes this exile in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump, right? In exile, especially in the destruction of Jerusalem. Judah is reduced to a stump. It is cut off. What remains? Oh, but we see a holy seed remains in its stump. This is what happened to Israel eventually in exile. But then we read in Isaiah 11, Then a shoot will spring from the stem or the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We look forward to these promises. Even, even as a stump, the promises of the Lord's salvation rest on Israel. And this passage goes on to describe the peace, the shalom that God will bring to all nations. And then verse 9 and 10, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water cover the seas. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and His resting place will be glorious. Interesting, one of the nations that will be called to gather to the root of Jesse are the people coming out of Shinar. Come full circle. But this is the good news going forth. That the knowledge of the Lord will be everywhere. And we find it here in seed form in Babylon. The most wicked place imaginable is where God will bring His salvation. His resting place will be glorious. And all that's been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What's in a name? Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. Here's another one. God took on human flesh and was born in a world full of His enemies. Infiltration. Infiltration. The conquering of His enemies. Restoration. Resurrection reconciliation, and any other nation, you could, any other Asian you can think of. We see this recapitulation, this repeating of God's action, going to His enemies, going, we could say, behind enemy lines, but in the midst of them. And God claims it as His own and makes His own glory revealed. Where did God also go? He went into the grave to defeat death rose from the dead. We find in 1 Peter that Christ descended into Sheol, made proclamation to disobedient spirits in prison, led captivity captive, gave gifts to men. So we see Him doing all of these things. And we see that reach its full culmination and fruition in the work of Christ. Taking the good news, the saving power of God to His enemies and transforming them, and granting them resurrection life in 
Himself. No matter the conquest, no matter the culture, no matter the captivity. God's promises are certain, His power is sure, and His people are secure. So it was then, and so it is now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for the book of Daniel. We ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes to see these wonderful things that even though in Babylon You were a God in exile, You are not limited. You are not contained. You are not powerless. And You are able to show Your glory and to demonstrate Your might over the most adverse of circumstances. Help us to see that, Lord, even in our own time. That we are not without Your presence and Your power and provision. Lord, You are able and mighty to save. You are able to work through us to transform our culture, to transform our lives. That even though sometimes it may feel like we're in captivity, we are in exile, Lord, You are no less with us today than You were with Your people back then. And that we have the the very real comfort of the Holy Spirit. We have the Gospel message and its saving power. We have one another, Father. We must not forget that as Daniel had his friends, his people, Lord, we have our people, and in greater numbers. I pray, God, that we would be faithful to You and to one another to be able to lean on one another in times of great temptation, in times of great spiritual compromise, where we think maybe at times, how in the world are we going to come through this still standing firm in the faith? But our answer is our answer is clear, Lord. It's You. It's You with us and You working among us. And I pray that we would lean into that promise, continue to claim it as our own, and that it would do its transforming work. We love You, Lord, and we, we thank You for gathering us together today. Receive our worship. From thankful hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.